Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. So can we welcome up Pastor RJ this time? Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. Glad you joined us. How is everyone doing today? Good. I am going to be talking to you about the Bible, reading the Bible, some other concepts of the Bible today. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 16 to 17, all Scripture, can everyone say all Scripture? Does that mean some Scripture? Most Scripture? Part of the Scripture? The parts of the Scripture that you like? All Scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. That's all I need to say. We're good. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So when we look at the scriptures or the Bible, God's revelation to humans, okay, it's all things related to life here on planet Earth. In our church uh, here, we adhere to... uh, it's a Latin term, they, they say, sola scriptura. It's one of the five pillars that came out of the Reformation when the Protestants were protesting Catholicism and, and they kind of formed another branch of Christianity. Uh, the, other, the other pillars were in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and to glory to God alone. So there was five of those pillars that came out that kind of are the basis of the Protestant faith. But in the scriptures alone, it simply means this that the scriptures are the ultimate authority for your doctrine and your lifestyle. Did everyone hear me say that? So that means that I can put out a document about my interpretation of the scriptures as Pastor RJ. But that does not equal or equate itself to the holy scriptures. Okay. In some faiths or practice, Um, religious leaders can put out documents or or interpretations or directives that equal the Holy Scriptures in practice, but we don't adhere to that. So the Scriptures are going to be the final authority for our lives. Now that said, um, it even supersedes your personal revelation. Wait, what? (laughs) Um, Yeah, the Scriptures are... um, fluent and coherent and written over a lot of time, but the revelation that comes out through the Holy Scriptures supersedes what you hear God telling you to do today. If there's a difference between what the Scriptures say and what God is telling you or what you're hearing, go to the Scriptures, not to what you're hearing. You know, oh, pastor, God told me I don't need to go to church and be with the church family anymore. He did, did he? Because there's a scripture that says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, even more so as the day of the Lord approaches. Which means we should be gathering more and more and more and more as we get closer to his return. Not go isolate ourselves and spend some time alone. Nothing wrong with spending a little season alone, but you still need to be a part of a church family or the body. Now, when we're talking today, let's see, 
I want to start with the languages that the Bible was originally written in. Does anyone know that? Your Old Testament, or the first 39 books of your Bible, were primarily written in Aramaic and Hebrew. There was a Greek translation that came out towards the end of the B.C. days, before the Christian era days, and uh, they translated it into Latin, and they called that the Vulgate. Or, sorry, Greek, and they called that the Septuagint. The New Testament was primarily Greek, and it was immediately translated into Latin, which they called the Vulgate. I got that backwards. Anyway, how many of you are fluent in biblical Hebrew? How about biblical Greek? I mean, for all practical intents and purposes, they're dead languages. We don't really speak biblical Hebrew or biblical Greek anymore. Scholars learn these languages, and there's people that do master the language, and they become very good at it. Um, But... Okay, let's, let's go here. Does anyone speak a language other than English? Hands, let me see hands. A few of you. Now, I want you to do this in your mind, if you can do this in your mind. Can everyone say in your mind? Okay. I want you to translate into the other language you speak or one of the other languages that you speak. The boy went to the store and bought a candy bar. Now, my point is, some of you, when you're translating that, you're going, okay, it's going to... The rendering of that is not exactly the boy went to the store and bought a candy bar. Some of you, it's the store the boy went and picked up a candy bar. Or the person bought a candy bar when he went to the store. Like, the language, the way that it comes together in the translation, how many know it renders a little bit differently? Is your translation any less accurate? Because you took the idea that we were communicating and you communicated the idea and the language to the speaker, to the person that you were trying to talk to, yourself. Okay. When we're translating from one language to another, okay, um, there's two primarily, two primarily, two primary trains of thought. Thought one is literal word for word. So you take each word in the original language and you translate that word into the language that you're translating it into. The accuracy of that is really good. The readability of that goes down. It becomes more difficult to read sometimes. There's other ideas where they take the complete idea or the complete statement, like most of you just did, the thought, and you translate the entire thought into the language you're trying to render it into so that um, people can understand it. Now, true translations will always fall in a range between this literal word-for-word accuracy and readability, um, thought-for-thought ideas. So the term that scholars use is they call it formal equivalence versus functional equivalence, okay? Now, a more formal equivalent translation of the Bible would be something like the New American Standard Bible or the Young's Literal Translation Bible, or the King James Version, or the New King James Version, and I'll just make a little note there. In 1611, they wrote, they, they kind of finished the translation of the King James Bible, the, the original one. You knew this, right? Now, <laughs> I told you this morning, that's right. How many of you speak English as they did in the 1600s? Hey, Tekla, how goest thou? It goest well, yes, exactly. Wherefore art thou, Paul? You know, like, do we, do we talk like that today? When you're not at a Renaissance festival without people looking at you like you're a little bit loopy. So we don't talk like that anymore. So what they did is they, they kind of 
cleaned up the language a little bit and made it a little bit more modern and they took some of the these and the thous and they made them thus. And that's how you ended up with your new King James version. Um, they just, they just kind of took some of the language that was outdated. I mean, here's a fun one for all of you. A hundred years ago, the word gay meant something totally different than it means today in our culture. It simply meant happy. Okay, so somewhere in the last hundred years, the definition of that changed. So if you're reading an older translation and it's talking about gay, it means happy. It doesn't mean gay like we do today. Did you, did you catch that? Okay, now... Um, the dynamic equivalence translations would be something like the New Living that you see me teach from a lot or the Amplified Bible or the Easy Read version, okay? I, I tend to spend more time in the dynamic or the functional equivalent versions. And there is some in between, like the New International Version or the Holman Standard. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is there's a spectrum of word for word here over to thought for thought here, and pretty well everything in between is good as far as Bible translations are concerned. When you get out over here into paraphrase, you don't want to ever use that for doctrine. So for instance, there's a paraphrase that is fantastic. It's called the message. The problem is you cannot build doctrine based on the message because it's not designed to be a translation. It's designed to be a paraphrase. Okay? And, and there's another one out there that I'm just going to highlight while I'm talking about this. And for the sake of time, we'll, uh, we'll keep it shorter. Um, there's a quasi-translation out there called the New World Translation. It's basically, it looks kind of real, but it's really fake. Okay, so for instance, um, Paul, can you speak biblical Hebrew? Can you speak biblical Greek? Okay. Um, Paul, can you speak Mandarin? No? You don't speak Mandarin? So how many of you... If Paul showed up next week to church and said, hey, everyone, I just completed my Mandarin translation of the Bible from the original manuscripts, based on his own admission that he can neither read nor speak any of the three languages, how many would have a lot of confidence in his ability to do that well? Not one. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> no takers. <laughs> no takers. Okay. So my point is simply this. The man who translated the New Living, uh, sorry, the New World Translation. He admitted in a court of law he could neither read nor speak biblical Hebrew and he could neither read nor speak biblical Greek. So how did he translate it? He took an English Bible like the King James Version and rewrote it to fit his own doctrine. And you would encounter that Bible the most on a Saturday morning when you're half asleep drinking your coffee and you hear, can we talk about the kingdom of God? That's the Bible that they adhere to and use. Unfortunately, he didn't realize that some of the words for God in the Old Testament, like Jehovah and things like that, he missed a few messianic prophecies and he didn't change them over. Um, anyway, so they don't really answer that well when you ask them about it. Now, my point is this. Most of the Bibles that you're going to come into contact with on like an app called Version that I like, you know, uh, there'll be good, solid scriptures that you can read. Now, to go a little bit further, the 39 books of your Old Testament were assembled by the Hebrew people and existed at the time that Jesus walked on the planet and the New Testament authors. Jesus and the New Testament authors constantly referred back to the Old Testament scriptures. 
Now, of the 39 books, I count two that didn't get a direct reference um, or a name. Uh, some people will say that there's eight or whatever. I'm not going to argue with people. I don't care. Um, but what happens is those scriptures were assembled and existed at the time of Christ. The Hebrew people referred to them as the Holy Scriptures, God's inspiration to humans. Jesus referred to them as the scriptures, the scrolls. When he went into the synagogue, he would grab like the book of Isaiah and read it. And, and my point is this, that Old Testament was assembled by the Hebrew people at the time that Jesus was here and was referred to as canon or, or sound doctrine. You could make doctrine of it. The 27 books that we have in our New Testament or our New Covenant, okay, they were actually not assembled in that format until 393 AD at the Synod of Hippo, which was just a church leaders gathering where they prayed and fasted. And they came up with what we know today as the New Testament. And, and from that time, we've had 66 books in our um, Bible. Now, I want to make a couple notes here for all of you. <clears throat> Number one, we do not rectify. We do not recognize the Apocrypha and some of the extra-biblical writings as canon or as scripture. Okay, here. And, and there's reasons for that, but they were originally rejected. They were never mentioned. They were, and there's lots of other books that were written in ancient times. How many know this? And don't be fooled. Like, people come to me and go, hey, Pastor RJ, did you know that there was a secret gospel of Barnabas and a secret gospel of Enoch? And I'm like, well, I knew that they existed. I didn't know they were a secret, and I didn't know there was anything super sacred or super profound in there. I mean... It was, it was a book that someone wrote. It didn't find its way into the scriptures. I've read one. I think I read Enoch when I was at Southern Methodist University in their, um, in their old documents room that's temperature and humidity controlled, and you have to put on gloves and a mask, and you set the book on the table, and you can turn the pages and read it. And it was a good read. It was just wasn't the Bible. And the other thing that I run into sometimes is uh, people read fiction and then they try to use it as a reference for fact. Like there was that book Dan Brown wrote about the Da Vinci Code or whatever and then I have people trying to refer to that as proof text for their doctrine and I'm looking at them like, it's fiction. You do know the difference between fiction and nonfiction, right? No? Oh, thank you. Anyway, I saw it on TV. <laughs> anyway, does anyone have an old book at home? Does anyone have a book that's 100 years old at, at their house, sitting on the shelf? Who? Oh, Pastor Dale, you have a book that's 100 years old? Maybe a little older? It's a Bible, coincidentally. Okay, Pastor Dale, if I was to suggest to you that that book sitting on your shelf that's over 100 years old is not accurate as it was written because the gremlins came in the middle of the night and changed the words on the page. Even his wife is looking at me, for those of you that can't see her, like I'm crazy. You've got that look on your face like, what you talking about? Like, seriously? Okay, would it be silly for me to suggest to you that it's not accurate as it was published? Yes. Because you've got it sitting there. That book has been sitting there. It's 100 years old. It's, it's there. It hasn't been changed. No one came and changed the letters on the page. 
I'm gonna come back to that maybe, if I remember. When we study ancient documents, it's called textual criticism. Now I'm gonna take big concept and try to compress it into something really simple. So I'm gonna oversimplify it. And for those of you that are textual criticism scholars, I'm sorry. But there's two things you need to know when we're looking at the reliability of an ancient document. Number one, the more copies you have that all say the same thing, the more reliable the manuscript. And the second thing you wanna look at is um, the closer to the time that it was written that you have a copy, the more reliable the manuscript is. Okay, so how many know if, um, I'm picking on Paul today, so if Paul comes in and he has a copy of his will and he signed it yesterday and he hands it to me and says, see, I signed this yesterday, that's a pretty accurate copy of his will and his wishes. But if he brings me one that's 100 years old, how many know that's not gonna be as accurate? For one, Paul's not 100 years old. <laughs> What's that? Thank you. Feels it. Oh, 57. Okay. My, my point is, um, the closer the time that it's written, the more accurate the manuscript is. Okay, now, that established. Any philosophy profs in here today? I love you with the love of the Lord. But sometimes when you get into a secular humanist education system, the philosophy prof will walk into the room and they will start talking about Plato's teachings. Now, has anyone ever heard of Plato, the philosopher guy, not the stuff your kids play with? Seriously, has anyone heard of Plato? Some of you, okay. So Plato, we actually have seven complete copies of Plato's work. And from the time he wrote them to the time we actually found the copy, it's, it's, it's 1,200 years. So when we look at ancient manuscripts, I've never once seen any scholar walk on a stage platform and say, uh, well, Plato, he's not really accurate as he wrote it because, you know, there's been 1,200 years between the time he wrote it, and we're not really sure if it's really Plato or if it was Plato and Plato's friend and someone else that wrote these things. No one ever says that. They just quote Plato. And then his frenemy, that other guy, uh, Aristotle, the other Greek, Philosopher, does anyone remember Aristotle? Talked to him last week, right? When we were spirit channeling, stop doing that. Um, listen, um, Aristotle, we have 49 copies of Aristotle's work. Well, any one complete of Aristotle's work is the most we have is 49 copies. And oh, by the way, from the time he wrote it to the time we have copies, 1,400 years passed. How are we doing? The reason that I'm pointing this out to you our New Testament alone, not including old, just new, we have over 24,000 pieces of manuscript evidence backing up the data that you're reading in English or some other language today. 80 times more proof than any other document in antiquity. And it's interesting because they all say the same thing. Complete copies of the book of Isaiah complete scrolls they found. And oh, by the way, our New Testament, we've dated it to 125 AD within 25 years of the time that it was written. How old did you say that Bible was sitting at your house? If anyone suggests to you that the Bible is not accurate, the translation has been changed over the years, that the original manuscripts have been corrupted, 
they're really rather uneducated on the matter and they don't know what they're talking about. Okay? And they need a little lesson in textual criticism. If we were to even look at the Hebrew manuscripts, I mean, not only did scribes pride themselves on accuracy, and they could make mistakes, but most of the time they didn't because they counted every dot of the I and cross of the T on the page, for lack of a better way of putting it. And it had to match exactly or they'd rip it up and start over. But they had the oral tradition in Hebrew culture, and how many know what every good Jewish boy does on his 12th or 13th birthday? They have a bar mitzvah, and he recites from memory the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, I know they've kind of watered that down in some versions of Judaism now today where they, depending on the day, you read this passage only. But I mean, when I was in school with, uh, I, I remember his name, and I remember sitting at recess when I was in grade three and four with my buddy. His name was Kifa, Kifa Shirley. And he was working through the book of Leviticus, and from memory, he would recite chapter after chapter, and I would just check him for accuracy so that when he got to his bar mitzvah, he could recite the first five books of the Bible from memory. And then when they turn 18, they learn the entire 39 books of the Old Covenant. So if you were to try to misquote the scripture, they wouldn't even let you do that because every good Jewish boy would say, nope, you got that wrong because they had committed it to memory. Okay. Now, I will be... Um, just for intellectual people that read stuff and you want to do searches on this. Uh, there is some technical variance with our scriptures. And I'm going to kind of give you some examples of this. But I want you to understand it doesn't change our doctrine, our lifestyle, our practice. For instance, if you're reading in Mark chapter 16, you'll see somewhere around verse 8 or 9, it'll say alternate ending for Mark, or these versions were not in the original manuscript, or in verses 9 to 20 are not in some of the earlier manuscripts. So we're not sure if someone added verses 9 to 20 later, or if the last page of the chapter fell out and they lost it, and then they made a bunch of copies on it. We don't know which one it is. But I can still teach all the New Testament doctrines without using Mark 16, 9 to 20. Does everyone catch that? Doesn't change your doctrine or your practice. It's just a technical thing with scribal. Okay. And then in 1 John 5 is another one that I hear from time to time. And the, the challenge is we don't know if, if John wrote these three agree, the spirit, the water, the word, and then a scribe missed it and then tried to write it in the margin and then someone else copied it. In the, like we're not sure. Or if someone added it later for clarity, we don't know. But I can still teach you the Trinity from many other places in the book of John, let alone 1 John. So these little debates that people have on these things, the technical things with the translation, it doesn't change your doctrine and it doesn't change your lifestyle. This is what I'm trying to explain to you. Are we good on that? Do we understand? So when you're looking at your Bible, it's God's revelation to you. It has the power to change your life. Okay? It's accurate as it was written you're reading some sort of a translation that they've done a really good job with, okay, to, to communicate the idea to you in the language that you're reading it in today. And as you spend time reading the scriptures, it'll change your life and it'll transform your life. So I have a couple things I want to say about that. Now, the power of the scriptures to transform your life with truth. Look at Psalms 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. You know, the scriptures, 
the word of God, it's gonna illuminate the pathway for you. If you ever don't know which way to turn, start looking to the word of God, it'll point out to you the pathway of life, the pathway of right. Doesn't mean you're gonna like it, but it's gonna point out to you the pathway of right. And, and if you fall for the empty philosophies of this world system, it's gonna lead you down the pathway of pride and destruction. You want the scripture to illuminate your pathway so that you can end up on the pathway of life. We need God's word to, secure, uh, to succeed in our faith walk. And you remember in Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the spirit in the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was probably pretty hungry. I mean, some of you can't fast 40 minutes without being hungry, but you know, Jesus, 40 days without food and water. Now, how many of you can go 40 hours without food? A few of us. 40 days. Jesus was hungry. Satan comes to tempt him, okay? During that time, the devil came to him and said, if you're the son of God, boy, didn't, didn't the devil do that in the garden with Adam and Eve? And he walked up to Eve and said, did God really say? Is that really what's gonna happen to you if you partake of that fruit? You know, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. It wasn't an issue for Jesus to turn the stone into bread. He had already done, or he can already, he later he did some miracles where he multiplied the bread and multiplied the fish. He's the creator. He's God. He could easily turn the stone into bread. That wasn't the issue for Jesus at the time. He was hungry and it was tempting for him to do so. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Many of you take great care to feed your natural man, your physical body, your earth suit, which is going to die and go to the grave one day. Your spirit is eternal and will live forever. Do you take the same care to feed your spirit? I don't know. But if the only meal you get in Christianity each week is when you come with the church family and sit here and listen to someone deliver a message to you for an hour... You're a starving Christian. You're not getting enough of the word in your life to transform your mind, and you're probably living in a struggle with your flesh on a constant daily basis. I'm just suggesting that maybe that's why you're struggling, because you're not putting enough word into your diet, and you're weak. God's word also reveals our true motives. Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and active and full of power, making it operative, energizing and effective. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as the division of the soul and spirit, the completeness of a person, and of both joints and marrow, the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and judging the very thoughts and intents of your heart. See, when you're reading the scriptures, it's going to expose the motive within you and why you do what you do. Why am I doing what I do? Well, the scriptures will reveal that to you. You can fool me. You can fool the person sitting next to you. You can fool the person sitting across from you. You can fool other people, but you will never fool God. You can even deceive yourself, but you will not deceive God. His word will reveal the motive. Why are you doing what you do? You know, I love talking about tithes and offerings. I think that it's a way that we can be blessed in our life. But the word is very clear if you're not giving with the right motive, if you're not giving joyfully, if you're not giving, if you're not giving without coercion, you will not receive the reward that you're desiring. 
The Bible's clear on that. God loves a cheerful giver, one who gives with cheer and joy. Okay, so the scriptures tell us how we're supposed to give, but if you're giving with a bad attitude, how is God going to bless that? Isn't that what Jesus was addressing? The fear? Hey, you guys, you tithe off your spices, but you neglect what? Mercy, judgment, love. There's no love in your life. It's good to tithe. We need to. We need to give money to the poor. We need to give money, right? But the problem is, if you're not doing it with the right attitude, you can't expect blessing because obedience to God's command is what produces the blessing. But we live in a culture today where people want the blessing without obedience. This is a problem because there's people that come into churches and they claim the promises of God, but then they don't obey his word and they don't see the blessing. Oh, I tried Christianity. It doesn't work. Well, for one, you don't try Christianity. (laughs) You are a Christ follower and you immerse yourself in the nature and the character of Christ. But the word of God even says in this life, you're going to have trial, you're going to have hardship, you're going to have some seasons of testing, and there's going to be a little bit of up and down on the journey. But you can have a stable, peace-filled, love-filled life if you anchor your life to the cross of Jesus. And he will see you through all of those things. It doesn't say you get a free, get out of jail free. It says you get, he'll sustain you through it. In James 1... The word of God, when you obey it, produces the blessing in your life. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you like, look like. Now, how many of you look in the mirror every morning and go, oh my goodness, who's that? I didn't say we want to look in the mirror and forget about, oh, I don't like what I see and I want to be, no, I'm not, I'm saying you look at, you recognize yourself when you look in the mirror, hopefully. Okay. But he's talking about how listening to the word and not obeying is foolish because the word is pointing to how Christians are supposed to live. This is the real you that the spirit will enable you to live as. But if you don't obey the word and you're not doing the things that the word of God talks about, the, word, the things the word of God instructs us to do, then you're just forgetting who you are. You're basically throwing away your identity as a Christ follower, as a son or a daughter of the Most High. You see yourself, you walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, see, God's law produces freedom in your life. It's the only freedom you're ever going to find is in Christ. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you do what it says, you get blessed. Just, just like in computers, we have these if-then statements. If this is true, then this happens. If this is not true, then this happens. Some of you do this quite often because when you go to pay for something with your debit card... You tap, or some of you have to insert it and type the number, and you know, some of you pull out cash. That's okay too. But I'm talking about debit card. Now watch. 
When the debit card connects to your bank, it does a little if then. It says, is there enough money in this bank account to complete this transaction? And it asks a question. And if there is, it says, okay, complete transaction, transfer money from this bank account number to this bank account number, and it comes out of your account, goes into another one. But if it's not true because you don't have enough money, it comes back and it says transaction denied, insufficient funds. And you go, oh, I guess I got to put some money in that account and try a different one. Do you understand? Okay. The Bible's very clear when it says, if you want the blessing, you have to obey what I've asked you to do. You cannot claim blessing if you're not being obedient. The word of God is the pathway to life, the pathway to blessing, the pathway to freedom. If you don't know what the scriptures say, how are you ever going to live as God intends for you to live? If you never read the instruction manual that God has given you for living life on this earth, how are you ever going to live according to his commands? If you don't know what his commands are. I'm just asking a question. Has anyone ever got a new product and it comes with an owner's manual? 20% of you read the manual. 20% of you break it and then read the manual. 60% of you are genius and figure it out without the manual. I'm kidding. The Bible is God's instruction for how we are supposed to live and interact with one another and how we're supposed to walk in love and how we're supposed to forgive and how we're supposed to let God judge and we don't have to. What do you mean? You don't need to judge anybody. God will judge them. You judge yourself. You'd be doing well. Oh, that's a good prelude for where we're about to go. Stand up with me as we come to the table. See, the Bible talks about the Lord's Supper. Or it says specifically in the scriptures, discern the Lord's body. Look at your own heart. Look at your own life. If there's active sin in your life, confess it. If there's unforgiveness, let it go. Because if you come to the table in active sin, or if you're coming to the table in unforgiveness, it says, for this cause, because you're not discerning the Lord's body, many are sick and weak, and some even die before their time. Some go home early because they don't discern the Lord's body. So when we come to the table, you take a second and you look at your heart and say, God, is there anything within? Reveal to me anything in my heart. Is there anything unclean in me? Is there any sin I need to confess? Is there anyone I need to forgive or release? And then you come to the table with confidence before God, clean hands, pure heart. So fathers, we, your people, can commit today to spend some time reading the scriptures. Some of you just have to listen to the word of God. You don't like reading, just listen. But Jesus, we look within. We wanna be Christ's followers. We want to be like Jesus. We wanna take on his nature and character here in this life. Lord, as we look to your word to be our guide, as we look to your word to show us the path, as we look to your word to teach us how to live and interact with others, Thank you that we can celebrate your death as your word says till you come. 
We can celebrate your crucifixion on the cross, your burial and your resurrection. We can celebrate the fact that you took stripes on your back so that we don't have to be sick. So Father, we lay down sickness and disease and we take up healing right now. Let your power be released in our lives as we're obedient to practice the command of Jesus to celebrate his death till he comes. In Jesus' name. Father, as we partake of the cup, the blood of the new covenant, I thank you that you redeemed your people with your blood. You purchased our freedom from the curse, from the enslavement of sin, from the penalty of sin. And Lord, as we've released others, I thank you that you release us. Free your people today, mind, body, and spirit. Let the blood of Jesus flow over us. We are covered with the blood because it sets us free. And Lord, as we purpose to spend time studying your word, as we purpose to spend time putting your word in our hearts and living as you've instructed us to, I thank you that you're transforming us from the inside out. You're changing our hearts, you're changing our minds, you're changing our circumstances because of your great power. So today, Jesus, we look to you, our guide, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Pastor RJ. Um, before I get started, I'm going to encourage everybody. This is my second time hearing this message. Go home and listen to it again. Later in the week, later today, you'll get something else out of it. It's just, there's so much there. Um, just a little thing there. And I'm here by myself today because we serve a God of miracles. Why am I saying that? Well, my wife is sick and... My two boys and I had to convince her to stay home. My mother-in-law is here. She'll understand what I'm saying. She misses this deeply. So my father-in-law is here. That's a miracle because he's still alive, playing pickleball, doing all the things that he wanted to do. We serve a big God and simply Christianity. You can, you know, you're going to hear more next week too, but reading your Bible, being saturated in the Word, it's necessary. There can be no Christianity without Christ. These are my wife's words, okay? Christianity is Christ relived in us. The Lord's designated way of working is to call us into a unique relationship with himself that through our very lives, is a unique relationship with himself that through our very lives and personalities, he imparts his nature and his life in us. The world will never see Jesus until he sees Jesus incarnate in us. Then suddenly somebody standing beside you will be aware that Jesus is alive in you. It's the process of touching others through our lives when we are saturated with God and captured by the gospel. When we allow the power of God to begin to manifest himself through our hearts, we should be reflecting who Jesus is. 
Titus 2, 12, 13 says that grace teaches us to live in the present age in a wise and right way, in a way that shows we serve God. We should live like that while we are waiting for the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Windsor Christian Fellowship, you've been equipped. Now go... Story.